Tedis has this great line of like, it's good to have a period without alcohol, like stop drinking for a while, but for God's sake, don't tell people about it. It's so boring. Um, <laughs> Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. This week's episode of the Good Life podcast is a slightly unusual one. I'll be speaking with Bridget Delaney, author of the new book, Reasons Not to Worry. Bridget was until recently a journalist with The Guardian and is the past author of This Restless Life, Wild Things and Well Mania. I hope you enjoy our in-person conversation at the Muse Bookstore about her new book. Well, thank you, everyone, for uh, coming along to, uh, to Muse. Um, my name's Andrew Lee. Can I uh, acknowledge, of course, uh, our star of the, uh, of the afternoon, Bridget Delaney, and her terrific book, Reasons Not to Worry. Um, we're having this conversation on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal people, so we acknowledge their elders. Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawalwari, Dharawari, Dindi, Wangaralin, Jinyan. And acknowledge any Indigenous people present here today. I uh, also want to uh, thank my uh, uh, very patient two boys, Zachary and Theodore, who've come along here to their very first Muse event today uh, and are absolutely thrilled to be in a bookstore uh, designed entirely for adults, uh, discussing uh, a, book, a book for adults. So, boys, thank you for, uh, for being here for this. Uh, so, uh, so we're in a room full of people where I suspect some people are really interested in Stoicism and know a lot about Stoicism, uh, and others have no idea whatsoever. So, Bridget, I thought we might just start with the, uh, the opening question. How did you discover Stoicism? So I wrote a weekly column for The Guardian, um, and some weeks I didn't have much to write about, so people would suggest I do experiments. Um, and try something for a week, like getting up at 4 a.m. or, um, you know, not drinking coffee. And one week, one particularly desperate week, um, I decided, a, a, an editor sent me a thing called Be a Stoic for a Week, which was at Sussex University, and it was an online stoicism course. And I remember that was a particularly hectic week. I was going out a lot. I was, you know, late to the tutorials. I was seedy a lot of mornings, uh, tired. And the story was essentially um, a bit of a piss take on stoicism and how you need to be stoic to just understand all this stuff. And there was a real backlash from the stoic community. They found the article um, insulting and um, belittling to you know, what a lot of people sort of see as a spiritual belief. And so I took that on board and I did Stoic Week the following year, but I did it privately and I decided to take it seriously. And I got a, a group of people together who were from all different areas of life. Uh, one was a trainee priest, one was, one was a journalist at The Australian, one worked for GetUp. You know, there was all these different people. And we formed a WhatsApp group and we decided to really focus in on what we could learn about Stoicism in that week. And um, I got a lot out of it, but I found it very difficult. And I, I was out with a friend one night and I was explaining it to him and he became really obsessed. And, 
Then when I saw him later, he said to me, I think I'm a stoic, it's changed my life. And behind us was, um, sitting in this restaurant was a publisher who managed to ring me the next day and said, I overheard that conversation. Uh, there's a book in it. And I'm like, well, I can't, you know, I'm not a stoic. I'm just like a stoic adjacent, stoic curious. And, um, but I started researching it and my friend and I went on lots of walks and we talked about it and we debated it. And then the pandemic happened and stoicism really, I just started leaning in really hard um, into the philosophy and then found like all my friends were calling me up saying, put this stoicism into my veins, I need it now. And it was useful, it actually worked. So I tried it you know, on people and on myself and um, yeah, I am now a devotee. And I found this bit of the book quite easy to read because your friend's name is Andrew, so I felt as though yeah, sort of I yeah, was yeah, uh, inadvertently finding myself <laughs> in your book. And one of the stoic notions that you, uh, you talk about a lot is that you control less than you think. Tell yeah. us about that and how that's shaped your way of living. So the Stoics have this thing called the control test, which, or the dichotomy of control, and it's set out in, and I'll just rewind a bit, um, just to give people background. So, so Stoicism started in Greece in 350 BC, and a lot of what, how that developed has been lost or exists only in fragments. But the Roman Stoics, so it, it, Stoicism then went to Rome, kind of pre-Christian, you know, kind of slightly post-Christian, and there were writings of three main Stoics that survived today. So Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius are the three main guys whose work you can access now, and I've used a lot in the book. But Epictetus had this thing called the control test in his book, The Inchiridion, which is handbook. And it says, essentially, you can only control three things in life. Um, your character, your actions and reactions, and how you treat others. And everything else is outside your control. And as soon as you absorb that and start applying it, you realise actually it's, it's true and you shouldn't worry about something that's not within your control. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try or you shouldn't try and persuade others or you shouldn't make an effort, but it just means if things don't go your way, you shouldn't be too devastated because those things were never within your control to begin with. And I liked your quote, you quote Epictetus at one point uh, saying that if somebody is angry at you, all you can control is your reaction to that anger. That's been one of the most useful things for me is people's reactions. So often if, you are, if someone's upset by you, for example, if you cancel plans or if something comes up or if you disappoint someone or... I mean, this happens to me all the time, but, you know, people just fall in love with me and I have to reject them. Um, so, you know, you can't control what their reactions to that is, but you can control how you react to their reactions. So that's super useful if you have disputes or disagreements where someone really goes, like, over the top or goes crazy. Um, and it's very easy to take that on board and stress about it, but you can't control that. Now, this is a 2,000-year-old philosophy, but you argue that the control test also helps us deal with FOMO. Definitely. And, I mean, the amazing thing about the Stoics is that 
they're very, very modern. Like I couldn't, I, I kept on thinking, how are these guys pre-Christian? Like they have things that you could apply to social media use, Twitter, um, you know, being on the internet all the time, FOMO, Instagram. Um, and Epictetus writes about, he uses the example of lettuce, which I think is like bizarrely prescient in terms of how much we've been talking about lettuce this year, <laughs> Liz Truss, and also um, the price of lettuce. But he says, if you miss out on a lettuce because it's 50 cents, you, you don't actually miss out because you have the 50 cents. So like, if you apply it to say a music festival and you see all your friends at this festival and you feel jealous that you're not there, it's like, well, you have $200 that you might have spent on the festival tickets and you've still got the time that you would have spent. You can do something else with that time. So you don't actually miss out, you just have a different experience. Um, so it, it makes me think that Roman and Greek society, probably we had more in common with them than we think. Tell us about the idea of preferred indifference. So that's a key, a, a key Stoic concept along with the control test. And the Stoics believed that there are things that are preferable but we should be indifferent. And those preferable things are our health, money, um, our reputation, um, our marriage is lasting, um, a body that works. Um, and it's, it's normal and natural to want to live in a good, comfortable home, to have great food to eat, to enjoy pleasant wine, to be thought of well amongst your friends and colleagues. But none of those things you can completely control. Like you can't completely control your health. You could walk out um, and get hit by a car, a, a cell could multiply in a bad way and you could get cancer. Um, your spouse could fall in love with someone else and leave you. Uh, uh, someone may, an enemy may start a rumor about you when your reputation's trashed. So in order to avoid being too upset all the time, you should be indifferent to things that you can't control. And the preferred indifference is they're preferable. It's preferable to have those things, but hold the reins lightly. You know, don't try and hold on to the good things because in the course of a lifetime, we're all going to lose our health, we're all going to die, um, we're all going to lose um, aspects of our mobility or our looks or our you know, functioning as we age. Um, there'll be times in our life when we're rich and times when we're poor. Um, there'll be times when people think well of us and there'll be times when not so well. So we need to be able to maintain a baseline of tranquility as we go through the vicissitudes. So let's go to a couple of examples of that. One, you know, one of my favourite Stoic ideas is that every now and then you should go out in public wearing embarrassingly unfashionable clothes in order yeah, to yeah. just remind yourself that your character is what matters rather than what other people think of you. And, and you talk about your very big puffer jacket. I, yeah. So Cato, a Roman senator, used to wear um, like there were a an unfashionably coloured cloak and bare feet around um, Rome. And that was his way of um, making people look at his character or realising his character was the only important thing, not what he wore. So if his reputation was built on being fashionable, he could lose his money and station in life and not be able to afford those clothes. So therefore, he was attached to something that he couldn't control. So it's a way of, um, it's a way of bringing it back to what can I control? I can control my character. I may not be able to afford fine clothes in the future, so let's make that an indifferent. Um, but back to the big puffer, my brother brought me, he works at uh, 
um, an op shop and he brought me the most enormous puffer and when it, um, I unpacked it, it, it bounced, kind of bounced along the floor and I put it on and it, uh, you know, it's enormous. And people laugh at me when I walk down the street wearing it. Like it is very physically, it's very visually funny. And um, so that's a good lesson in not being too caught up in my appearance, I think, because, you know, it's, it's often not out of, it's often not in my control. And another one of my favourite preferred indifference stories you tell, Bridget, is about uh, taking a two-week fast and how that changed yeah. your, your relationship to food. Well, the, the Stoics, uh, the modern Stoics, many of whom live in Silicon Valley and love fasting because it's a biohack, um, <laughs> say that we should get used to not having food um, because our food supply could end at, and it's out of our control. So they voluntarily fast. And um, I tried that as well. It's, I mean, I put in the book, like, it's all well and good for a, a rich modern Stoic to fast as a way of getting used to not having food, but the likelihood of, of that coming to, um, coming to bear is, is small. But it's, it, like, Seneca fasted, um, he had two days a month of just eating coarse bread and water. And uh, there's another, there's a Greek guy, um, who's heard of Diogenes? Diogenes, um, he took it quite far. He didn't just kind of eat simple food, but he threw away all utensils and all everything that meant he relied on something else outside him because he saw a child drinking from a brook with his hands and he threw away his bowl and said, I don't need this. Um, I can just use my hands. Um, so that's an extreme example. He was a cynic, not a stoic, but um, that's an extreme example of the philosophy. For me, yeah, I, fa I fasted actually for, well, mania, another book, um, and that was horrible. <laughs> was, I'm traumatised. I will never fast again. <laughs> but you said you enjoyed smaller morsels of food afterwards, so there was a sense yeah. of gratitude in, uh, in yeah. getting just one piece of food rather than expecting sort of three, four, five. Exactly. And I think... Anything that takes you out of your routine and a routine that relies on money and a certain position in society is good because you then realise that you can survive should your circumstances change. There's also the idea in Stoicism that you don't have to have an opinion on everything. How does yeah. that shape your worldview? As a former columnist who had to have an opinion a week, um, I love that idea of not having an opinion. I love the fact that because I think now, I particularly think we're in a society that is so torn apart by opinion. It's so destroyed by people not comfortable with differences in opinion and not having the mechanisms or the um, confidence to engage with different opinions. And so you have people in silos in social media, um, you have people completely tearing each other apart because of a difference of opinion. And the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius had this great quote, um, you always have the choice of not having an opinion. You know, you don't have to have an opinion on everything. And um, that's a really great reminder that, you know, I don't know much about uh, French missile contracts. You know, I could have an opinion on Twitter, but it's, I, it would be an uninformed opinion, it would be an ignorant opinion. So, like, you know, just step back. And the, the stoic underpinning of that opinion piece is around um, 
tranquility. So tranquility was hugely important for Stoics because they believed uh, there was a Greek term called ataraxia, which is just basically equilibrium, being easygoing, being chilled, and they didn't like to get out of that zone. Like they really tried very hard to keep on an even keel because um, they just believed it was easier to get through life if you weren't high and low, if you were just uh, in the middle. And so having an opinion or a clash of opinions can actually cause you to get quite het up. And so they were very careful around like getting too fired up. And related to ataraxia, I guess, is the notion of moderation. Uh, you mm. point out that the Stoics uh, weren't into uh, excessive consumption of, of anything. Uh, but you also make the lovely point, Bridget, that uh, they weren't into bragging about their temperance either. Yeah. There's, um, Epictetus has this great line of like, it's good to have a period without alcohol, like stop drinking for a while, but for God's sake, don't tell people about it. It's so boring. Um, and um, Which is very prescient. Yeah, it is. And he called them water drinkers. He's like, be a water drinker for a while, but just keep it to yourself. And it's like, I mean, the Stoics would consider, ancient Stoics would consider this conversation in poor form because they didn't believe in any sort of prophesizing or talking about Stoicism. They were more about like, let your life be your kind of um, say what you need to say about stoicism by your example, not by writing a book or having a public conversation. Um, but anyway, they're, well, they're, they're all dead. They won't know. <laughs> Resilience is also one of the things that uh, shows mm. up in your discussion of, of stoicism. And you have this mm. lovely tale of uh, Musonius Rufus when mm. he's banished by, uh, by Nero. How mm. does he react to his banishment? So a lot of the guys back in the day, the punishment was exile. Um, so they were often sent to places we'd spend now thousands of dollars on holidays, like you know Greek islands and Corsica. Um, but back then it was like a terrible thing. Um, but Masonius Rufus, um, a, a lawmaker that was exiled, was like, oh, this is great. It's kind of like a health retreat. I can use this time in banishment to get fit, to not to drink less, to eat you know just fruit. And so, you know, it's that turning a thing that is um, quite negative into like, where's the good in this? And a lot of Stoics wrote their most kind of enduring work and did their kind of best thinking when they were in exile or banished. So the Stoics have a particular relationship towards death. And um, one of my sort of, uh, one of the aspects of my, my embrace of Stoicism is I've just gotten a skull for my office, which uh, sits on the, on the coffee table. Which former staffer was that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, uh, to, to remind me that in 100 years that's going to be me. And, and what's, yeah. um, what's fun about it is, A, it reminds me of, uh, of death. It's my own memento mori. Mm. Uh, mm. And secondly, almost no one that walks into the room comments on it. Everyone's just like, hmm, skull on the table. <laughs> anyway, uh, you talk about your own memento mori being partly through the walks that you took past the Clovelly Cemetery. What yeah. did it mean to you to walk past a cemetery each day? It meant, you see, you, you get, I think people get so caught up in their internal and external lives, like, that you forget that the things we're caught up in is a dash between the date you were born and the date you died. It's just a dash. That's, what's, that's what a whole life is represented by. So, um, you know, the Stoics reminded themselves daily that they were going to die, and they did that not because they were kind of morbid, but because... They wanted to enjoy every moment. Like they really wanted to get the most out of life that they could. 
um, and they wanted to suffer less. So they didn't want to spend that dash, that period of time in suffering, they wanted to spend it in, in joy and, and in relationships that were, that they didn't take for granted. So it reminded me when I walked past of like, that'll be me, you know, anyone who's seen Dead Poets Society, um, your food for worms, boys, you know, that sort of stuff will we'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but we do, I think it's just the human condition to act as if we live forever. Um, but it's also good to remind ourselves that, you know, we, we, we need to do bold things, we need to change things, we need to live a bit more deliberately because we're not going to live forever. And uh, it's interesting when you talk about uh, the way in which Stoicism made a difference to your friends. One friend that you say was quite affected by it was somebody who was going through dealing with cancer. Uh, and mm. you make the point that Stoicism was more useful for her than some of the sort of standard um, aphorisms and bits of advice that, mm. that we give to people with cancer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so that was a colleague of mine from The Guardian, uh, Joe Toby, and she got, she's very young, like she was, I think, 35, 34, 35, when she was diagnosed with cancer last year, we'd just gone into lockdown. And I was having issues with this book. I was not sure whether I'd finish it. And um, Joe suddenly got diagnosed, was into hospital immediately, surgery, chemo, the, the full thing. And everyone in our kind of community rallied. And when I asked her what I could do for her, she said, I'm gonna be in hospital alone without visitors. I've got a lot of time to think. Can you leave me a WhatsApp voice note every night with a stoic lesson and do that every night until um, I leave? So I did that. And sometimes it was hard because there's a lot of death in stoicism and there's a lot um, about illness, which if you're going through it is just very brutal to hear. But she liked it because she knew going through it that it was, you know, when people say, you'll be okay, you'll be fine. Like she had a sense that maybe she wouldn't be fine and it wouldn't be okay. And she liked the fact that someone was telling her that. Um, and she also liked the fact that it was old. Like it was, you know, it had, it, it had been around a long time. People had used it and really leaned on it. Um, and it didn't, I mean, the Stoics hate hope. Like they don't hate hope, but they, don't believe in hope. Like they say, if you hope, you fear. So um, there's that great line from Seneca, if you cease to hope, you cease to fear. So if you look reality in the face and you look life in the face and you don't hope for the best outcome, but you think, I could die from this, I could also live, but I could die. Um, if you are close to death, you've kind of squared yourself off a bit earlier. Anyway, the, the great news with Jo is, is that she's now successfully completed treatment. She's in the all clear, everything's going well. Um, but I spoke to her recently about, for this book, about whether or not, you know, whether stoicism helped. And she said it did help, um, but it's also, it was hard medicine. So I think that's, mm. you know, because I haven't been through that. So a lot of my, my writing is theoretical. So I want to, before we open up for, uh, for questions, uh, ask you about some of the sort of critiques that are sometimes made around Stoicism. Mm. Uh, one is that the idea of preferred indifference is 
a lot easier when you have a lot. Um, so mm. Seneca famously was pretty rich. Um, mm. You were writing this book from the standpoint of living in Tamarama for a while, where the average house price is $8 million, mm. uh, and you were taking cliffside walks along one mm. of what mm. is undoubtedly one of the most beautiful spots mm. in the world. Uh, to what extent is Stoicism a bit easier when you have more? To what extent is it an easier philosophy yeah. for the affluent than for the vulnerable? Look, it's very much a rich person's philosophy. Um, and uh, I must say, to my, in my defence, I was in a share house in Tamarama. Um, <laughs> uh, not my own $8 million house. But it's, it's a philosophy that... Um, Marcus Aurelius was the most powerful man in the Roman Empire. Seneca was probably the Elon Musk of his day. He was extraordinarily wealthy. Um, Epictetus was a slave, so he comes from a different background. Um, the, the aim of it is to make you used to, to, to kind of get you used to the idea that if you have wealth, it's fickle and you need to prepare for it to be lost. Um, Seneca, in the end, uh, you know, this is not a spoiler, like, you know, he was forced to die by his own hand because Nero, his employer Nero took a set against him. So firstly, he, uh, like, tried to drink hemlock, it didn't work. Then he tried to slit his wrists, his veins were too weathered. Then he, like, put himself in a steam bath and, um, you know, then asphyxiated himself. And all the money in the world, and he had 500 marble tables ordered for a din one dinner party, all the money in the world didn't prevent him from having this, this terrible end. And he was trying to give away his money and he was trying to sort of make himself a small target, but he still copped it in the end. Um, so I think, you know, that's a kind of long way of saying being rich will stop you from some sort of suffering, but it won't stop you from, you know, lots of other sufferings. Uh, but look, my, my big um, critique of Stoicism is like, I struggle to see where it can affect change with social justice because the control test is so limited. So how can you, particularly with the climate crisis, like how can you go and do some really big things with climate change if you feel like you can't control anything beyond your sort of small remit? Um, yeah. Is that what you think with Stoicism? Is that your kind of... I, I think you do need to be fairly ambitious about being able to change things. You know, there's mm. a funny sense in which uh, entrepreneurs have the odds stacked against them, whether they're social entrepreneurs or business mm. entrepreneurs. They succeed in some sense because they're not very good at figuring out what they can control yeah. and they, they have an overinflated sense of their impact mm. and some of them actually manage to crash through and, uh, and make an impact. So mm. maybe there's a sense in which you need to sort of not not just be objective about what you can do in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to be able to... I mean, the hope thing's interesting. You do actually have to have hope. You do have to dream. Um, but they were just realistic about what one person could do. Mm. And, I mean, my way around that was they have four virtues, which they really are their guiding principles, which are justice, um, courage, mo temperance or moderation, and... Um, oh, I've forgotten Wisdom. the fourth. Wisdom. Um, and so through the justice virtue, I think that's where you can justify maybe like the social justice aspect. Yeah. But yeah, I had to kind of shoehorn it in. Um, 
wasn't an easy fit. But then the Stoics also were, were people who really, like, they were politicians, they were uh, playwrights, they were incredible people. So they weren't this passive sort of group. Um, yeah. And certainly if the other Roman leaders had had some of the character of Marcus Aurelius, then that mm. would have been a much more pleasant place to live for the typical Roman citizen. Yeah. I recommend everyone read Meditations if they can. It's just the mm. most gorgeous book. It's yeah. beautiful writing. It's, um, it's full of wisdom. And it's, a, it's his personal diary that was never meant to be read by anyone else. And it's just a person trying to kind of come to grips with you know, his mortality, uh, his genocide that he committed in Germania, um, but, you know, all sorts of things, you know. Um, and it, it's full of poetry as well. It's, it's full of mm. beautiful writing. It's interesting to see uh, a lot of the Stoic figures we've talked about, you know, Seneca, Epictetus, uh, Marcus Aurelius, blokes, but also current Stoic uh, uh, promoters, people like mm. Ryan Holiday, mm. Massimo Piliucci, who I've had on my podcast. Mm. Uh, apart from, I guess, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum, there's not a whole lot of women out there talking about Stoicism. Did you, how did you find Stoicism, coming to Stoicism as a woman, why do you think it tend, it's tended to be a pretty blokey philosophy? I mean, I think any, like, the way that women were treated through history and their place in history means that in the early, like, canon, you don't have women writers. Um, I mean, the Stoics had, the Greek Stoics had this really interesting, almost feminist, I think Massimo kind of calls it out as being feminism, where they believed as long as you had a, a mind that could reason, you were equal to everyone. So men and women were equal, slaves and free people were equal, people of different races were equal, and it was reasoning which was the um, organising principle of that. Um, but then it got lost in Roman Stoicism where it was very segregated and the men had all the power. Um, for, modern, for modern Stoicism, I think women are put off because they, there's a whole thing around desire in, in Stoicism, which is you can control your feelings and you can control you know, um, things before they run away. You can control love. You can tr control all this stuff. And I think anyone who's on a kind of you know, hormonal cycle. I mean, as we all are, but it's like things aren't that, it's not a matter of applying reason to your instincts and that then guiding you. Like sometimes, you know, we act from unconscious desires, we act from um, things that, you know, we act hormonally, we act, uh, you know, because of patterns that have already been established. And the Stoics were very sophisticated thinkers, but they weren't, you know, they didn't know as much then as we know now about human behaviour. Mm. And so a lot of people look at Stoicism and say, well, that doesn't, I, I don't see like I can do that to my life. You know, I can't just turn off the tap of feeling. I can't, um, a lot of my friends who've, I had a number of friends who've lost parents in the last couple of years and they'd always ask me the Stoic approach to grief and I'd feel terrible telling them because it's all about like, at a three-month mark, you know, you really should be over this. And they were horrified because grief was something that came in waves that they couldn't control, that was very connected to the heart. And so that's where I think a lot of modern people recoil at stoicism. Mm. Um, but I would say you can use, you can take what you like from stoicism and dis, you know, 
it's not like the church where you have to adopt a whole doctrine. Like, you can take what you need mm. and discard the rest. Um, but if anyone's interested in exploring this area further, um, Mark Zuckerberg's, weirdly, Mark Zuckerberg's sister Donna wrote a book about feminism in Stoicism called Not All Dead White Men. And um, it's, a it's a great book at the bro looking at the bro culture in Silicon Valley and Stoicism and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, very good. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you like this conversation about Stoicism, you might enjoy my past conversations with Ryan Holiday and Massimo Piliucci, as well as the chat with Martha Nussbaum. These conversations will explore other aspects of Stoicism beyond those that Bridget and I discussed today. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode of The Good Life podcast to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.